Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 343 podcast. So here we go. Is promotion and relegation coming to the United States? Is it ever coming to the United States? Ah, the eternal question, isn't it? A question really, though, that should be framed more like, is opportunity and inclusion in the soccer ecosystem ever coming to the United States? Or will it remain exclusive and discrimination-based? I'm not trying to be inflammatory here with that word discrimination. So perhaps gatekeeper-driven is more palatable for you? But nonetheless, one must consider the role of a gatekeeper then. A gatekeeper, by definition, decides who's in and who's out. Their job is literally to discriminate. Now, of course, there is the good sort of discrimination. I mean, if you're going to go get some surgery done, you want whoever's doing the surgery to have a medical degree. And for them to get the job at the hospital that you're going to, well, clearly the hospital is going to discriminate based on whether one has that medical degree or doesn't. This, I think we can all agree, we're in favor of. Whereas something like, say, a coaching license, now that's absolute horseshit and mostly used as a vehicle to discriminate in the bad sense and not in the good sense, as I've just mentioned. So who gets to have those opportunities at different levels of coaching? Hmm, well, some nameless, faceless bureaucrats in some back room pretty much get to decide. And the same goes for who and what communities get to have the opportunity to participate at a particular level in the club soccer marketplace. A gatekeeper decides your fate. You absolutely do not have the opportunity to merit your way to any particular level. Again, some bureaucrat gatekeeper decides your fate. Now, please don't get it twisted. Many here think that if you just have the money, you can buy your way into, say, Major League Soccer. And that's just not true. Let me make it clear. You cannot just buy your way into MLS. The gatekeeping there is not just whether you are a billionaire with a financial and an infrastructural wherewithal to compete at that level. The requirements are actually totally amorphous, which means they can discriminate based on whatever factors they want, which is fine in my book because MLS is a private company. But then again, that brings us to the fundamental question. Do you want a world where a corporation holds a monopoly on the American First Division and gets to choose which clubs, which communities, and which individuals get to partake? Or would you like to live in a world where all clubs, all communities, and all individuals have the opportunity to merit their way to their appropriate level? In any case, USL, the second division of professional soccer in the United States, seems to have stated their intention is to go with the latter, namely opportunity and inclusion, which is great if they actually go through with it. What follows is a discussion Terry and I had on USL's mid-year general meeting, which happened in July, where the proposal of implementing promotion and relegation between their divisions was stated, in addition to aligning to the international calendar. I hope you enjoy, but before we jump in, I'll do a couple minutes of ads for coaches and parents of youth players looking to solve their soccer problems. These are problems we ourselves have encountered in developing players at every level and, of course, ended up solving to great effect. If you're a coach wanting to implement a possession-based methodology where it's your team that's in control of the match instead of it being the usual back-and-forth random mess that you see here in American soccer, 
The solution is at 343coaching.com. And guys, this is coming directly from someone who has implemented the methods, refined them, and helped transform the landscape by showing playing this way is possible with American players in the American landscape. This is not the usual scripted course or presentation regurgitating material from some book, some PowerPoint presentation from a federation, or quoting some famous pro coaches overseas. To successfully implement a legit methodology, you need to witness it, not only visually, but audibly as well. That's what you get at 343coaching.com. You get immersed in the actual team training sessions, all professionally caught on video from Elevation and Coach Brian's audio captured as well. Again, these are the actual team training sessions with Brian's actual players as they prepare for match play on the weekends and long-term development of their abilities. With well over 1,000 members nationwide at various stages of the program, coach success stories keep coming in. We'd like to see yours as well. Now, if you're not a coach, but a parent, it's no secret the American youth system is screwed up. So you need solutions as well. What team should you play for? What coach is or isn't a good fit for your kid? Should you do personal training? Should you not? What's important to look out for there? What should you be looking for in the near, medium, and long term? I mean, the questions and circumstances are endless. They can depend on age, level of play, position, club, geography, politics, and so on. But while the context might change, the best way to increase your chance of making good decisions is by developing your skills in the fundamentals. And I'm not necessarily just talking about skills of the player. I'm talking about your skills as a parent making decisions or helping make decisions or guiding your player. In one minute, you can join the email list at 343masterclass.com. When enrollment of the program opens, we'll send you a note. And if you're interested in a solution that blends both academics and soccer, my co-host Terry in this episode founded the Accelerator Schools. There's even the opportunity to do this in Europe as well. To learn more, visit acceleratorschool.com. All right, I hope you enjoy this episode. We're just scratching the surface here, folks, but it's an important starting point for us to further expand down the line. Enjoy. In this podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about USL's mid-year meeting. There's not a whole lot of hard evidence, but there was an article published in The Athletic. And I think we should start, though, with the MLS, uh, because I think there was a precursor event that is important. Recently, MLS announced it was going to implement a development league aiming at third division sanctioning, independent from USL. I heard there were going to be 20 teams, mostly MLS second teams, but some independents, and that it was going to rank below the USL championship level. Uh, so the first question for you, is it exposing a divorce in the relationship that was at least symbiotic to this point? Yeah, good question. As most questions, when it relates to something that I, I don't have firsthand knowledge to, and what I mean by firsthand knowledge is I'm actually in the negotiations uh, for a partnership or a joint venture or something like that myself, right? If you're not actually privy to those conversations, I'm always very skeptical on any report or any hearsay. But from the outside, it does look like, I mean, the fact is there was some sort of symbiosis between USL and MLS with all the MLS second teams playing in the USL championship. And what's interesting there, at least from reports, 
which I think can be verified, is that the USL clubs would have pretty good attendance uh, for the most part, the independent ones. But the MLS reserve sides would not have good attendance at all. Nobody's really interested in looking in, in, in attending reserve MLS team matches, apparently. So that was always quite an interesting thing. And in my opinion, it seems like USL could, if they chose to be a threat, a competitive threat to MLS over the long term, that certainly is something that's possible. And with MLS reserve teams being in the USL championship, MLS in a certain respect is helping them grow their influence and their footprint nationwide. One, so if you're a competitor, you don't want to help your opposition there, one. Uh, two is if you look at historically, uh, even more recently, actually, the performance of USL clubs versus MLS second teams, the USL clubs would often beat up MLS sides. The MLS sides were actually not performing very well. Now, there's a variety of possibilities as to why that's the case. One is if MLS is using their second teams as a development sort of platform for their young guys, well, then the average age of their second teams is significantly lower. So you have less experienced players. Maybe you have a bunch of 18, 19, 20-year-olds versus their USL counterparts, which might have mature journeymen professionals in the mid-20s, uh, maybe even a 30-year-old or something. And so there's that imbalance there. I'm, I'm giving them less the benefit of the doubt here, okay, a little bit. But it's not necessarily a great look for them either to have USL clubs beating up on their reserve side. So I'm looking at that whole picture and maybe that's what stimulated MLS to say, you know what, let's have our own reserve league and break off, which leads us to, to what you just said, Terry, uh, a, a divorce of sorts. Uh, USL held their mid-year meetings. And again, this is reported in The Athletic. And I haven't seen anybody else report directly on the meeting. And even the athletic article was citing multiple sources that were in the room following what Jake Edwards, he's the USL president, was proposing. There were, I think, three important things. There were six total. But first of all, in no particular order, the calendar issue, they were going to move from fall to spring, more in line with the rest of the world. And then two, they were going to have promotion relegation between and it was quoted the professional divisions. So that's implying championship and USL one, but not necessarily USL two. We'll talk about that. And then I think the third interesting thing was that they proposed a cup competition, the scope of which was not completely defined, but something akin to getting more exposure at high level games. And there were a couple other items, one making a USL video game, which I thought was cute, but not a real major talking point. So these things are up for a tentative vote, the end of the year meeting, which is scheduled for December of this year. And they're going to decide on that. And then the only other piece of relevant information, and then I'll have you comment on the three subjects. I think they're important. The target date of implementation was reported as 2026, coincident with the World Cup, which is going to be held in the US, Canada, and Mexico. So they're giving, I think, a little bit of runway for the championship teams in particular to get ready for the impact of promotion relegation. So let's handle three things, ProRel, the calendar issue, and then USL2, okay? Okay, let's start with the calendar. This has been the subject yep. matter of a lot of commentary over 
many, many years regarding MLS that they do not follow the FIFA, the standard FIFA schedule, like the rest of the world basically does, where it's a fall to spring sort of year round calendar. And that greatly impacts, I mean, I look at one angle, okay. That greatly impacts transacting in the global marketplace for players in particular. It's hard to do business when, you know, the European transfer window is during the summer months and MLS is mid season. So it's a little bit complicated for MLS franchises to say, oh yeah, sure. Let's make, let's do some business and we will sell a player to you. It just creates some unnecessary friction in that regard. And similarly, when we are off season here in MLS, which is during the winter, well, yeah, the Europe has a winter break of sorts, and there is a transfer window in the winter as well, but now Europe is mid season and it's a lot more complicated for one to transact two for a player to actually land there in Europe and then make an impact when they are in mid season form and you don't have that whole preseason window to earn your spot that just complicates matters for a player. So all in all, just for looking at it from that angle alone, it would be a huge benefit for at least USL to change to the FIFA calendar, because then that opens up a lot more possibilities to transact with the rest of the world insofar as player movement is concerned. And little by little, USL is showing signs of establishing a little bit of a pipeline, you know, from their league overseas. I've had the privilege to partake a little bit in that. I won't go into detail, perhaps a little bit in the future. I'll reveal some of, some of those things, Terry, but you know, I have personal experience in dealing with this friction where the calendars are not aligned. So it's a very welcome change from my end. So that's what I have to comment on the schedule. And I hope one day MLS will also join the rest of the world in how we operate the sport. Yeah. I saw no reports that MLS would follow the change. Most of the social media was all concerned about having games in Northern cities being in cold weather, but the proposal does have a winter break and a shorter preseason. They say akin to Germany's schedule. I don't think that's a real problem. I think it's not a problem everywhere else in the world. They, they play in cold weather, but I thought the online chatter was 90% of that. And only maybe the astute few comments were regarding really the synchronization of the player transfer window I'm glad, I think is, is way more important. I'm glad you bring up that whole thing about, oh my goodness, the winter, the winter, you know, how are we going to play in the winter objection? Because that's been going on for decades here for forever as well. And it's a narrative in my opinion that has been deployed and has been sunk into the fan base as an excuse as to why MLS doesn't change. It's almost like a defense mechanism immediately when there's a lot of countries around the world that have the same or worse winter situations than here in the States. And they say met. Great Britain <laughs> all year long. Great they Britain's met. got worse weather. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. manage. They no, manage. Kidding. There's places with snow. There's all there's disastrous uh, environmental factors all over the world. And somehow, some way, they operate their league. Yeah, they can have an, a nice long break in the winter. That's not, you know, too long to get the players too rusty and out of shape, but certainly they can stay fit during that time. And then uh, they can schedule and have the January, February games, all away games for the Northern cities. And really it's a no big deal. And 
look, the NFL and they play in terrible weather. And the players actually, what I've been told through, again, my father as a scout, uh, they mentioned last time, the players don't mind playing the games. They're not, they're thrilled about practicing and freezing weather every day, but the games, they're all fired up and the crowd's big and, and it's not a problem at all. Where there's a will, yeah. there's a way, right? Yeah, pay me that much money, I'll play in the weather too. I grew up in Buffalo. I know, but as a little kid, we played in frozen tundra. Yeah, so okay. welcome change from USL. And I think it is a differentiating point, uh, again, because USL is little by little open up that transfer pipeline. So awesome way to differentiate yourself. Awesome way to kind of signal to the marketplace, hey, you know, there is another way to the top of the food chain in professional soccer, and you don't have to go to MLS. You can go to USL first as a young buck and then um, make your way from there. Okay, let's start with ProRel. So the language, and I want to be specific here, was quote, quote, between professional leagues, implying that it was just the championship in League One. And just to be clear for the audience, USL2 league has been in the past, at least a league for college players and amateurs, not professional and, and partly because they were college players and couldn't be paid. And I don't think the new image ruling from the NCAAs brought enough to affect this at all. So they won't be professionals and they're, they're out of sync with the, the schedule. So I can see really why it would be limited to the two professional divisions, but it's a start, right? Yeah, no, no question about it. I mean, promotional relegation is what this whole podcast is about between you and I, Terry. And, and I think as more and more people figure out the benefits of this, and there are almost no negatives in my opinion, aside from maybe uh, some owner squabbles, but why are we protecting the few at the expense of the many? I think uh, going down this path is a huge step forward, although everybody should be cognizant that while USL might implement this between their two divisions, this does, this is not promotion relegation in the truest sense of the word. Okay. This is really a, just a competitive format to make things a little bit more compelling. I'm sure it will incite more investment into uh, their structure as we can talk about in a little bit, but promotion relegation, what it really means is an open ecosystem, meaning the entire ecosystem is completely open, laissez-faire economics, right? But this is still a closed situation because you have to be an USL franchise to even be competing here, okay? And they still are the ones saying whether you can have a franchise or whether you cannot have a franchise to even compete in the circuit, whether they internally have promotion relegation or don't. And the only fear I have is if this were to come to fruition and somehow not materially demonstrate all the benefits of a true open ecosystem, that it might be used by opponents as a referendum on the real thing when this isn't actually real promotion relegation. But it is a welcome change. And hopefully if they move forward and this isn't just some PR stunt to get attraction to their brand, that, that they do it right. Yeah, and I'll just review for those that are not familiar with the USL structure. The USL Championship Division, right now 31 teams in uh, two conferences, Eastern, Western, two divisions, Atlantic, Central, Mountain, and Pacific. The Mountain Division's seven teams instead of eight, like the other. So I mentioned the 32nd team will come in and complete the table. Again, there's no promotion 
above, nowhere to go. And this would be a relegation zone for USL one. The championship uh, level is $12 million to buy in. It's probably going up. And then they do have a 14 playoff. So you only have to be in the top half to have a chance to win. And then there's only 12 teams in the USL one at, at the time, and there's a 16th playoff. So same rules hold, but it's a $2 million buy-in, at least lately. While the stakes are far from the $325 million buy-in at MLS franchise level, there is a little bit of economic risk for those that bought into the championship when they become vulnerable to, to be relegated. But like you said, what I'm uh, fearful of also is that it just becomes a blended league where the valuations kind of probably migrate up and settle into the same thing. And then there's not the economic risk of, of downsizing or again, not an open system. So even if you have your $2 million, you can't necessarily get in. Right. Yeah. Probably. Um, yeah. A, a, a comment here on the so-called risk, because I know this is always the objection about MLS opening up or joining, right? Uh, a promotion relegation sort of ecosystem. Oh my God, Gary, but the owners invested, you know, 50 million, a hundred million, now $300 million. Like it's not right. Blah, 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 blah. We've discussed that on another episode. Let's focus on USL here. So you mentioned it was a $12 million currently $12 million buy-in or thereof for the USL championship, which is the highest level of USL. And now the same sort of fan slash media narrative is coming out. Oh, well, the owners will never go for it because you're risking, you know, they bought in for so much. Like, how does that make any sense? Two things are important. One is let's look at the net worth of these owners and what percentage of their net worth a $12 million buy-in is, because it might just be the equivalent of me investing $1,000 right in the stock market. So exposing them to this risk is not some moral, morally deprived action. Okay. Um, one, two is prior or during the pandemic, or even after the pandemic, there have been USL championship teams that have self relegated to USL league one. I think North Carolina is one such franchise and in the, rationale, the rationale there, as far as uh, my understanding goes, is that the owner said, hey, this coming year, I don't want to have the expenditures of the USL championship. I'd rather reduce my cost structure. And so, yeah, I have no problem competing in USL League One. That, insofar as how lucrative gate receipts are and merchandising is and TV uh, revenue is for USL at this point, it's not something that's great at the USL championship level. So if you get relegated to USL league one, it's not like you're taking a big revenue hit in any sort of way. As a matter of fact, you can structure player contracts. If that's your biggest line item in your budget, such that if you get relegated, you know, your players make less money. That's how it's done everywhere across the world. Hey, you have a contract. If you're in the first division, you have a contract. If it's, if you get relegated to the second division. So there is, there are mechanisms, there are ways to manage costs, manage risks. And I don't think there is such a, a huge risk in being relegated from the championship to the league one. That's number one, Terry. Uh, I'm sorry for rambling on here and we'll, we can edit this a little bit, but 
looking at it the other way is you said there was a $2 million buy-in currently or roughly thereof for the second tier of USL, USL League One. Yes. Great. If they institute promotion and relegation, you can envisage that investors will want to get in and buy in at that $2 million level. Because if you win that second league and get promoted to the USL championship, well, all of a sudden, you, the valuation of your club has increased in order of magnitude. Yeah. So it's a, it's smart, especially if you're a wealthy person, it's a smart investment. Yes. Now we only have 12 teams in USL League One. I envision that this could bust open that marketplace nationwide at lightning fast speeds. I envision dozens and dozens and dozens of new USL League One teams popping into existence real fast because everybody will say, hey, this is a good investment opportunity here. And it's in a, in a sport that I love. So for example, Terry, if I'm actually intrigued, I'm not going to lie, like to even propose, hey, Terry, let's find our own investor groups or our own people that's band together. And if this is how it's going to work, obviously we have to do our due diligence and see what the rules are and see what all that stuff is. Then shit, man. Yeah, we have all the components. Let's raise the money. Let's launch our USL League One team right away. And I think uh, like us, there's going to be dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of people with some wherewithal that will do it. I agree with that. And I don't mean to be cynical, but could it be that USL was struggling to get USL one teams and this is the way to open up? I mean, 12 teams barely make sense unless it's a, a reserve league, right? And maybe they never talk about it that way, but this could certainly be the incentive. Like you said, with only 12 teams, they could easily go to 30, 32. And again, the economics make so much sense. Now it's just a matter of get your money in order, go to make a presentation. I don't know, bribe under the table. Does that exist? I don't know, whatever it takes. But again, the real sad thing financially is that it's not an open market where you could come in at USL2, almost unlimited, and then and no money's on the sideline. Remember we've talked about you know, for that one bid at the MLS, there were four billionaires told no thank you in certain cases. And that's three to $500 million per second place guy that doesn't make it. So economically, this will be a boom for USL to expand from 12 teams. And yeah, I'm ready to fundraise. They will fill it up, Terry. That's my prediction. They will fill up that third division league real fast with a whole bunch of teams in, in a whole bunch of states that are totally underrepresented in our country. I'm talking the Dakotas. I'm, I'm talking like uh, Wyoming. I'm talking like everywhere. I could totally see it happening. I could see a, a thriving third division uh, that gets developed and built right under the nose of MLS and there's nothing that they can really do about it because they won't offer the same sort of incentive to do so. This is a huge incentive for people to jump in and on board. And once you do that, I think USL can have a good platform to build up their championship as a result up to the levels of what MLS is or was just a handful of years ago. I don't see why they wouldn't be able to do that. I had another important point. Give me just a second here, Terry, while I, I try to recall. Oh, yeah. Going back to the risking of the $12 million entry fee that some 
USL championship owners may have invested, you can structure, USL can say the following, hey, we're going to institute ProRail in 2026. All the existing USL championship clubs, there will be no relegation for another four years. You know what I mean? There's only going to be promotion from USL League One uh, upwards. And then again, that gives the owners of USL championship yet a more extended window beyond 2026 to decide what they want to do with their asset. Do they want to sell it or, or do they want to start doing the math and calculations and see if they want to retain it and grow it? And depends on what the ambition of the owner is. So they're, it's not like they're flipping a switch and saying, we're doing this next year. They're going to start in 2026, already have a five-year runway. And they could even offer another two or three-year runway beyond that. Okay, here's my fantasy. We could get, in the United States, if things went well, you could get a side-by-side -side comparison of a closed system and an open system. And it would be fantastic if there could be competition and maybe it's the... the the cup tournament or this new cup tournament or just the, the American open cup and get some data, <laughs> some really hard data. That would be fantastic if we could do that experiment for the world and we could either crow and like a rooster, or we could eat crow <laughs> if it didn't work out like we, we think, but that would be fun, huh? Yeah, totally fun. I think something else that we need to research and we need to do a good job for, for the public and researching are the professional league standards. There is a document out there from the Federation that establishes the criteria for being a division one league, division two league, division three league. And buried in that standard, there are things like the club must have an owner that is worth at least X number of dollars. That's still quite troubling that requirement because there's a multitude of ways that a business can exist, right? It doesn't have to have the owner have a certain net worth. One, two is the other requirement of population, city population in order for that particular club, uh, which is counted among all the clubs in the league. It doesn't make sense that a certain threshold population needs to exist in order for the league or the club to be division one, division two, division three because that already eliminates all kinds of cities throughout the country. All kinds of communities are automatically disbanded. So that's going to be an issue. You know, if USL has ambitions maybe to be sanctioned as a division one league in the future, so that there's a war that's going to brew here to rewrite, restructure the rules from the federation level. Yeah. I'll take that out. I know I have that document that we've reviewed it before. That we'll revisit it next time for a little recap of that. Yeah, it's troubling some of the stuff. And they keep, I know for MLS, they kept switching the goalposts to make it more and more difficult for uh, non-big market teams to get in. And uh, with only 12 teams, even if they opened up a mere 32 teams, that's still, it's less than 20 additional teams. And with the country so big, even though they uh, got divisions that make total sense. Again, Atlantic, Central, Mountain, and Pacific. We're talking the most leagues in the world would fit into one of our divisions or less geographic space. So really the United States needs probably, what, 4X horizontally at each level to be 
even remotely dense enough to say that we're on par with some of the other leaks in the world. And that would open up a lot of places that uh, otherwise won't meet those criteria that I'm afraid of are, are going to be very exclusionary. I wouldn't and, be surprised, Tara. I wouldn't be surprised if USL does this right with the promotion relegation thing that there will be over 100 division three clubs that pop up. So our USL league one will have over 100 clubs. That is my suspicion. If it's done correctly. I don't doubt that actually. And there's plenty of room and there's plenty of money to make that happen. California alone. This is something that we've mentioned before. California alone can sustain an entire first division league. If you just look at like Argentina, Uruguay, Chile, Colombia, I mean, you name so many countries that are basically the equivalent geographically speaking, population speaking as California alone, and they have an entire pyramid that they're hosting. So California alone can host an entire pyramid, the equivalent of a, of a foreign country. Of course, the objection there is, ah, oh, Gary, but soccer is not that popular in the state, so it would never happen or whatever. Listen. I understand the argument and I'm not saying that we would do it, but certainly California can sustain more than three first division clubs and certainly California can sustain more than five or six division two clubs and certainly more than 10 division three clubs. We can carpet bomb the entire U.S. Easily. And I don't know if you saw the recent diagram and unfortunately we are not on a video link here, but. It was from Epic Maps on Twitter. Every dot is a football pitch and it had Europe and it focused on Germany. I'm going to email you this because it's outstanding. Hang on real quick. And also a data point. There are 20 first division teams in Buenos Aires alone. Let me see here real quick. This is a fun picture. Yeah. While you look that up, I'll just say a couple other things. It's really sad. The objections that always get brought up by the fan base, thanks in large part by the narratives crafted by MLS media to oppose promotion relegation. So such things as, oh, what are you going to have? Like USL league one teams that play in high school stadiums, get promoted to the championship, you know, that can't happen. That's a disaster. Why, why is that a disaster? What's wrong with a high school? What's wrong with a high school stadium? That seats 3,000 or 4,000. What, what's, what's the problem? There's no problem here. 4,000 people can make a lot of noise. And yeah. It's packed and the enthusiasm is there. Why are we... It's better, are, it's better yeah. than 4,000 in a 70,000 seat stadium, right? Yeah. Why are we objecting to that? There's no problem with high school stadiums or junior college stadiums or college. We have incredible infrastructure here. And as a matter of fact, when you're going to get promoted or if you're competing to get promoted, people seem to forget that the posture and the mobilization from an economic standpoint completely changes from what it is today in a closed ecosystem. So you will have different types of owners of these clubs, not just different people, but even the people who currently own them will change their own posture as to how much they're going to invest and what they're going to invest and what they're willing to do and what they're not willing to do. So while you might start out at a junior college stadium or a high school stadium or something, they will have plans in place in case they will get promoted or if their ambition is to get promoted to have one of these compact, beautiful 5,000 seat soccer specific stadiums somewhere in the city, okay, or in a neighboring city or wherever it is. 
So it's not like they are stuck in a high school stadium forever. No, you develop it. Just like MLS developed themselves. You know, the Galaxy started playing in the Coliseum or the Rose Bowl or whatever until eventually they got their soccer-specific stadium. The same is true, guys. So I don't understand. We need to, we need to grow up and grow out of these archaic narratives that, that were instituted to preserve the status quo. That's, let's be a little bit smarter. Yeah. The, the lesson is the environment is dynamic. Things will change. It's not a static picture. That's what's really sold. Like it's static and frozen in time. And that's just not just like you said. So anyways, take a look in your mailbox. So there's a, an image in that. The point of the image is the density, especially in take Germany, for instance, there's a dot for every soccer club in Germany. You can't find a blade of grass. Holy crap. Holy crap. (laughs) Is that a beautiful picture or what? Wow. So that is what Europe looks like as far as density. And like Germany is completely awash in football clubs. There's nowhere there's not one. Italy, same thing. France, almost exclusively, except for probably the mountain peaks, the Alps. And, yeah. Uh, Spain's got some hot desert places in, around Madrid that it's a donut. Fascinating. Spot. Fascinating. Portugal filled, mm-hmm. obviously England filled. So that's the type of density. And I bet the U.S. map is similar in density. Yeah. In fact, we should, I should look for one. Because there's, again, there, and I'm always amazed that some of the tournaments I go to just to visit with some people that are coming in from out of town. We host a fair amount of, especially girls tournaments at North Carolina clubs I had never heard of and just not far away and just they're, they're there. So anyways, back to the point about the density, again, the USL, it's an open ticket. As many as they want, they can have, and that's a lot of money. That's going to come into the system. And that's just a start. And the success that comes with it and all of that community rivalry, money spent that just sucked into the, to the game from the community is, it's hard to put a number on, but it, it's not trivial. All right. I think you should comment on USL too, yeah. just because people Agreed. will, I think many people will assume that uh, if they don't read it carefully, that USL two is also a door to get in and it really is not by the rumor mill. And we haven't heard anything really official from USL and probably won't until the end of the year meeting in December. Yeah, they'll, I'm sure they'll want to incrementally pursue this path and not just op- open the doors right away. For the reason that you earlier cited that USL League 2 is principally for the college players and, and the amateurs at this point. It would be nice if one day that also maybe becomes a fourth division. But, you know, the fourth division across a lot of countries is kind of like this amateurish slash, you know, they're on that borderline in, in many cases. So I'm not surprised unless USL graduates to be division one at some point, and then USL league one becomes the second division, then, you know, <laughs> league two could be the, the third division, but that would be yeah. really cool if, if they were also included at some point, because then maybe the buy-in there is not 2 million, it's a quarter million. I, I think so. Yeah. In fact, I think there's a, there's a conflict coming between college soccer and USL2. COVID interrupted it a little bit, but college is, I understand it, is trying to switch to a more of a full year program or two groups of games in each college semester. And so that will put it, if it goes to, say, a 
eight month program or so or longer, that'll put it directly in conflict with what the USL2 has been as kind of a summer league for college players to stay sharp and, and stay in shape because the college season was compact in basically one semester for so long. Yeah. So I see that those two things to me can't coexist. I, I think there's going to be a problem there. And maybe this is why they're avoiding mentioning the USL2, but certainly it would be awesome if they opened up a lower division that was, again, very affordable. Terry, my dream scenario, and, and we're going off a little bit in too far into the future and too speculative at this point, but the dream scenario would be that the universities not only shift the way that they do academics, which slowly but surely they're being kind of pressured to, to, to change. And same on the, the sporting side, as you know, you know, there was a recent ruling, the NCAA will now permit their athletes to, to leverage their image and likeness to profit off of that, which is great. But the next step would be awesome if their soccer department would align themselves maybe with a calendar that would be amenable to say something like a USL League Two and compete in USL League Two. Instead of competing in this exclusive college circuit that the NCAA controls everything, no, no, no. We as a university are going to have our soccer program compete within the pyramid uh, of soccer in our country. And let themselves grow as big and as far as they possibly can. Could you imagine, you know, a college program competing in USL League Two, winning it, going to USL League One, winning it, then going to the USL Championship, playing in the USL Championship, right, with professionals, but with their own student athletes. Like, in principle, I don't see any problem with that. You know what I mean? In principle, okay? Now everybody will say, the hyenas online. Oh, hey, Gary, by NCAA and student athletes are not I mean, real athletes or they're not pros or like they're stuck in that framework and they can't pop out of that framework. Again, in principle, there's, there's no problem. What's, what's the problem with that? You do your academics and you also play sports, right? And you, you just so happen to play in the league structure that our country has. Might save the college game, prolong it a little bit longer. I think it's Scout some problems. I think the change to a full season, I think is a good one for the, certainly for the players. They were playing twice a week, getting injured and just too concentrated of too much game, not enough instructional training time, whatever. But this is a good sign. I don't know. All good things are not quite the panacea we want, but it's getting closer. Yeah. Hopefully the next generation is a little bit smarter, a little bit braver and not so shackled from a mental perspective that just because Things have been a certain way for so long that they have to continue being a certain way in the future. Well, that's it for today, guys. Thank you for listening. A reminder for coaches, you can get both the free and premium coaching programs at 343coaching.com. Don't let anyone tell you your teams can't win by playing dominant possession-based football while also developing individual players to the highest levels. Nonsense. We've proved it at every single level and so have hundreds of serious member coaches across the country. Now that we've moved on to the pro level, we're delivering everything we've learned in the program. Don't wait and continue delaying getting on a proven path. And parents, 343masterclass.com is where you want to go to get a working compass for navigating the American soccer landscape with your player. It's pretty bad out there, but let our experience guide you. 
And if you're interested in a solution that blends both academics and soccer, my co-host Terry in this episode founded the Accelerator Schools. There's even the opportunity to do this in Europe as well. To learn more, visit acceleratorschool.com. Until next time, cheers everyone and keep building.